Recording. Recording. Wait one sec, I have to yell at my mom. Mom? I'm doing an interview. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. It's okay. Um... I'm Rainy. And I'm Darcy. And this is Mob Wives Official, the TikTok account that has captured the hearts of millions of users and aspiring 13-year-old Rachel Berries. No, you are not killing anyone on a Sunday, all right? Sunday is a holy day, plus I made meatballs, okay? Sunday is for meatballs and Jesus, so reschedule. I see you didn't touch the scrambled eggs I made you, hmm? You don't like my scrambled eggs? You want to say it to my face, huh? You have missed your son's piano recital for the last time. I keep telling you, I'm the one you have to be scared of, okay? I don't know about those other mobsters out there, but I'll break your neck. I'm making cannolis for your daughter's birthday tomorrow, and I know exactly how many there are, okay? 33. So if you think you're going to go in there and sneak one in the middle of the night, you got another thing coming. We're excited to welcome Vienna, the ultimate mob wife to the pod. And like your average mob wife, Vienna is wicked smart, of Italian heritage, and values loyalty above all else. She also will never be caught without mozzarella in the fridge. That was so good. Um, today, she's going to talk about the repercussions of overachieving, female sexuality at boarding school, OCD, medicine malfunctions, living inside an intricate and absurd soap opera, and the inspiration behind some of her viral narrative TikTok videos that transcend the platform itself. Vienna's story is confounding, inspiring, and told with the enunciation of a Broadway star, the lucidity of a psychotherapist, and the vocabulary of a writer for The Atlantic. So buckle up, because this is... Lifestyles... (laughs) lifestyles of the anxious and famous okay and we're back and we're back you're here oh i am here you are so on doing it wrong on doing it wrong my dream by the way vienna is the second famous person i've ever met the first being guy raz also saw malia obama walking on a cross street but that doesn't really count because i didn't talk to her so i'm so excited she is tiktok famous and I'm actually, I honestly think I'm your biggest fan. Rainy, but I'm your biggest fan. So this is sort of <laughs> romantic. Rainy's like geeking it's, out. I am like. It is so, like, this is like a beautiful moment for me, This guys. is beautiful. <laughs> the second thing I know about you is that you're like definitely going to be a Hollywood star. A hundred, and this is like a sixth sense thing. Rainy. Because I, sometimes I just know things. I know, I knew we were going to get a dog. I knew my grandpa totally. was going to die. I knew I was going to go to Tufts. <laughs> I know you're going to be a Hollywood star. So I'm really excited to. Oh, that this is, is the thing. so nice of you to say. <laughs> sometimes the, I feel like the only thing that I know is that I won't be a Hollywood star. And so to hear that you know that I will is, is actually necessary. <laughs> it's necessary energy for me. No, so I, I really appreciate definitely that. Definitely in my bones, the molecules, I'm like, yep. But so how did you, oh. how did you and Darcy meet? That's a good question. I remember the first time I met Darcy was actually before we lived together. Actually, we shared this really special night together where <laughs> it was pouring rain and we were coming back from bar night. Darcy had hair down to her butt. My <laughs> hair, I had recently in a fit of, in an identity crisis of sorts, had cut it. And I remember we were we were running side by side again, did not know her name, running side by side in the pouring <gasps> rain in the same general direction. Oh, wow. And your hair this was is... so long and so wet. And I, and you were like, my hair is so long and so wet. And I was like, I wish, I wish, I wish I had that. And she truly just like moved into my house. I had, I actually had seen you on a bar night 
when you were wearing this amazing green dress and I just remember you like laughing and laughing and laughing (laughs) and that's like all I remember really yeah and you were like so vibrant but just like laughing and I was like this is amazing that's so nice I didn't know who you were so you met Darcy I want to back up Mm -hmm. a little bit before that though and ask like who were you in middle school oh my god and then in high school okay I live and I have always lived in the same place, which is a house with my entire family. Actually, I'm sorry. I'm not going to say my address. Let me go back. I live in a house with my entire family in New York City (laughs) in the East Village. And, you know, my favorite party trick is to, like, invite people I barely know over to my house, like, traipse up the stairs and be like, my uncle lives there and my other uncle lives there. And if you open that door, you're in my aunt's living room. Like, this whole haunted house that I live in with everyone who's ever been related to me and the quirkiness of it is such yeah. a big part of who I am. So my my grandpa ran a restaurant, an opera singing restaurant, where all the waiters performed in the Metropolitan Opera. He ran that for 75 years <gasps> out of the basement of this house that I still live in. What? And so, like, truly absurd. The I mean, performance happening always for the past 100 years at this point in this building. And I was truly kind of like born into this attitude of we're performing every night. It's like, go, go, go. It's a restaurant, Mm. but it's not just a restaurant. It's like a performance at the same time as being a restaurant. And maybe that mentality is something that I learned to carry with me. And I think it instilled in me this idea of like, always kind of having an audience. Like my family has always been, I've been like laughing and performing with them my whole life. And I honestly, I think my middle school self like had that in me, but did not understand where it came from. So middle school, I was just sort of starting to play with like the concept of theatricality and sort of like parodying life itself. I remember like doing bits and trying to be funny and and, and being absurd. And it was, you know, people were like, Mm -hmm. are you okay? It was not like, there was not like laughter. And I think... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that came later, but yeah. but I do remember like being very insecure and being kind of mean some of the time related directly to insecurity and trying to figure everything out. And I think trying to figure comedy out. I knew that I had a lot of like the word potential. And I feel like this could be true for both of you as well was a word that was like as like a little girl with a lot of potential mm-hmm. was like a word that was thrown around a lot that I mm-hmm. honestly did not understand and felt mm-hmm. was kind of like sort of dismissive because it was just it was a way of saying like I think she's really smart but these circumstances maybe don't maximize that and I was kind of like I don't really know what that means because what if it's just I'm doing my thing now but it's like not in a way that's measurable there was kind of an idea of like if we get her out of here like big things big things and I kind of internalized that Mm. so I just got out you know then my parents got divorced shortly before I went to boarding school how did what do your parents say about the divorce and was that well I consider myself part of like a sort of exclusive club, I think, where I was like gleeful when my parents got divorced because I was like, this is so mm-hmm. clearly not working. And I think mm-hmm. a part of me was like, okay, we stick this out. Like, it, you know, it is it is so dysfunctional, but it is also the way that things are. And so we will do the best we can to thrive. And mm-hmm. then when my parents were kind of like, we're actually not going to put ourselves through this anymore. I was like, I didn't know you could do that. A. B. That's amazing. I'm happy it's happening it was much, much better when it was happening without them in the same house. So uh, j'adore divorce, I always say. <laughs> um, j'adore divorce. 
And then you went to high school and it was this like hyper insane environment. And it was like this novel of a coming of age tale. Mm. I went to high school at this boarding school and I, you know, for what it's worth, something that I hold very dear to me always, I could shit on my high school for forever for a variety of reasons. And the reasons why I have evolved as I've gotten older and understood more about what happened there. But I loved it so much while I was there. Absolutely loved it. I just want to say that because I could go off about this school for forever and about the ways that it's done some damage. Mm -hmm. But I got there and I just, the thing that I will never forget about high school was just the feeling of all these eyes on you. And I think that had a lot to do Mm -hmm. with like womanhood and womanhood at that boarding school, which I think womanhood at boarding school Mm -hmm. is so, so difficult, at least the way I experienced it. It's so hard to like figure yourself out and figure out what you need as a human being, what you want to tolerate. The level of what was accepted there, what was like the norm, what like you as a woman who was intimate with other people accepted as your norm, that existed before you had a chance to figure it out. Like it was laid out for you. And it was Mm -hmm. kind of like, are you going to be difficult or are you going to shut up and follow the timeline? And are you going to shut up and follow the timeline with everybody watching you? And are you also going to be an A plus student? And are you also going to do all these extracurriculars? And are you then going to somehow make time to like process what's happening to you and your body? Darcy knows this, but I still see the same therapist that I saw like three weeks into high school because I had a full-on nervous breakdown, like full-on and lost like 20 pounds. And I'm kidding you, not a week and a half. And they were like, you're going to therapy. They had an in-house therapist there. And I remember like going to, I mean, of course, going to therapy was so taboo, but there were a lot of kids doing it because everybody was on medicine. Everybody needed therapy. Wow. So was that sort of like your first personal reckoning with your own mental health I think and I feel like this is true of a lot of young women and I'm curious about this for you guys too I think I had started to play with control before I had gotten to high school I think I had started Mm -hmm. to play with like the aspects of my life I can control the aspects of my life that I can't and how far can I push the boundaries and what new things Mm -hmm. are going to pop up that I can't control and I think I got to, to high school And I realized one big thing I could control was my eating, what I did and didn't eat, and sleep. And, you know, not control in a good way. Like, when you learn that you can play with these things because you're unmonitored, like, for me, it wasn't like, oh, great, Mm -hmm. I can sleep all day because you couldn't do that. It was more like, I cannot sleep at all for a week. And what does that do to my body? What new sensations does that produce? And the way I ended up with Miss P was that I basically... I was learning for the first time, like as I was starting to feel more and more out of control with Mm -hmm. how crazy academic my high school was, I remember the feeling of hunger became like comforting because it was the one thing I could control. Like I could feed my body or I could not feed it. And I basically, you know, at that age, because I was 14, I didn't know what that actually did to you to not eat for, for long periods of time. And medication also played a role in this but I think this was even before then and realizing like okay wow I can't control my schedule I can't control how much homework I have I can't control when I get to see my family but I can control this and so I ended up like not eating or sleeping for literally a week you know Mm -hmm. with some exceptions 
I lost all that weight and then it all kind of came to a head when Mm -hmm. I woke up on the top bunk of my freshman dorm. I'll never forget this. And I like sat up. I looked at the ground next to me, like on the, you know, on the floor next to the bunk bed. And then I was on the ground and I sat up again and I was like, okay, I need to tell an adult. Like they have briefed us about this. There's dorm parents. I went and knocked on every single adult's door, like screaming and banging because I knew something was wrong. Nobody came. Finally, and this is really emblematic of what my school was like. Finally, I found the monitor on my hall, the girl who's my best friend to this day. Her name is Molly. She was my monitor. She was two years older than me. I banged on her door. She got up out of her bed and I was like, I I think something is seriously wrong. And she had to call security. We were locked in our dorm. So she had to call security to get me out of there and had to take me to the infirmary. And they called 911 and I basically was like acutely dehydrated. But that girl even stepping up and filling the role of the adult, like that was that was high school for me a lot of the time. Like all of these kids coming together to like fill in these parental roles that we were constantly being let down with because the adults around us to differing degrees, I think, had trouble really understanding what we needed. And that was my first, you know, brush with mental health. And since then, my road with mental health has been a long one and one that I'm still like very much in now. You know, realistically, I think I probably dealt with a little bit of anxiety and depression in middle school, but in high school and really in that moment was when I realized it was something I had to deal with. And then they, after that incident, they sent me to talk to Mrs. B, who's still my therapist. Wow. One question that I had, but I think you might have answered it, was I was wondering if you stopped eating as a result of like body image and mm-hmm. like all eyes on you, but it sounds like it was more of like control. That is, I think that's such an interesting, no, I completely agree with you. Like that is such an interesting question for me because when it started, it could not have been less about body image, which is weird for me because now Mm -hmm. like I care more than I did then. Mm -hmm. I like, I can authentically say for the first few years when I dealt with disordered eating patterns, it, it had to do with the feeling of control it would give me and it had nothing to do with body image. Was it a satisfactory byproduct that I lost all this weight? hundred percent. But I remember like, it just wasn't even something I had to think about because I was on stimulant medication. I could take it for granted that I would look a certain way. And it really was about control, Mm -hmm. which is super helpful for me now looking back because it's helpful to know like this all started not because of body image, which I think other people have a different journey and it is very tied to their self-image. But for me, it, it wasn't. And that's like, I think that issue with control Mm -hmm. is something that I'll always kind of have. Right. Did the therapist help? She did help. She helped a lot because she created this, she kind of like burst the bubble for me. Like she would say to me Uh full on, like this place is not normal in in a way that was Mm -hmm. very helpful because she would be like, I get that this is what you chose and that this is what you want to continue to set these really, really high goals for yourself. I also want Mm -hmm. you to know that this is not realistic. This is not real life. You Mm -hmm. are living in a bubble she would be the one voice I had of like, this is not real, dude. Like this is not, you know, this place is crazy with a capital C. That's really interesting. And then the stimulant that you were talking about, is that anxiety or what what kind of medicine was that? So that was a medication called Vyvanse, which is for um, ADD, ADHD. And when did you first go on it? I first went on it. I was, I think I was still 14, I think. Okay. And I took it for five and a half years and it took me so long to get off of it. And I don't want to like, I don't want to make judgments on this medication as a whole because it's worked miracles for some people. I think for me, 
it's funny because it's like, would I go back and not get on it? I don't think so because then I couldn't have done the school play Mm -hmm. and student government and done well in my classes and had friends and all of this stuff. But long-term, were the effects incredibly negative? Mm -hmm. 1,000%. And what were the negative effects? So in the moment, it really, at that age, because I was already 14, 15, 16, 17, and, and to start with, you don't need a lot of sleep or, you know, you're so young. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. literally did not need to sleep or eat. Like I was a bionic woman, bionic child. <laughs> I truly think about how I operated <laughs> in high school and I'm like, how? Yeah. How? how? Like who, Actually, where can I meet yeah. her? I would love, truly. I would love. And I'm like, where is yeah. that urgency? And like, <laughs> actually there was just like this deep motivation to mm-hmm. succeed in every way I mean my social yep. life definitely suffered and like my relationships were like trash probably but like <laughs> not even on my radar <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like would stay up so late and wake up so early and then I would like have three tests in a day and then go play like a soccer game literally it is just how yeah yeah how I'm like and how? now I, and now I like send two emails right. in a day I'm like oh wow incredible i'm so brave i'm so strong 100 percent. 100 percent. i mean i remember in high school i would have had you know seven and a half hours of class would not have eaten hadn't slept in a week you're one pizza you're one pizza right darcy knows every few days i would devour an entire pizza this is so (laughs) fucked up but yeah okay so i first got to school and there was lucky charms and i was like oh i can eat lucky charms for breakfast lunch and dinner who's gonna know no one besides me and my oh, no. little girly friends who coincidentally are also 14. And so that's all I did. At, at and nobody friends. was, you know, checking my nutritional, um, my nutrition levels, which were You're like suffering. Lord of the Flies, like no parents. No, no parents. Wow. And, and like, you know, being watched intensely, but not in ways that would like pick up on uh, emotional suffering and, and occasionally right. physical suffering. It was like physical surveillance with zero support. Yep. <laughs> with zero support. Exactly. And you would have a like 11 or 12 hour day of craziness where you would have, I would have woken up, gone to to eight hours of school, gone and done the full length musical afterwards, then had like two and a half hours of meetings. And I would sit on my bed and be like, it'd be like 12.04 in the morning. And I'd be like, what's next? What what else can I do? I'd like run around (laughs) my dorm, like run up and down the stairs, go visit everybody, do a few hours of homework, like sleep an hour and just do it again. Like it did not feel like, rest felt like a waste of time, which now all I want to do is rest. (laughs) (laughs) When Okay, so I just want to ask this if there's any like... Because you were talking about how fourteen, when you were at 14, you didn't know what not sleeping and not eating mm-hmm. does to your body. And I, I don't yeah. know, actually. I mean, I know it's bad, but what, what does it do? Yeah. So I'll speak for yeah. myself because I'm, I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to extrapolate here, but one of the biggest things with not eating and of course, this is all different because when you start to mix them with stimulants, it's a whole other right. thing. Not eating had the biggest effect on my mood. Like I would be a different person and I, my patience for things completely different. Like my ability to sit in situations completely destroyed when I wasn't eating. I think not sleeping, it can make, it can induce psychosis. And there yeah. were a few times, and to be honest, not eating also, also contributed to that. But but then the mental effects um, and the way that it like fatigues your brain, mm-hmm. I think that stayed with me for years. You know, yeah. just a few months of really disordered sleeping and eating, I think stayed with me 
uh, for a really long time. And then you mix in medicine to that and it just makes you able to not eat and not sleep for longer. But your body, you know, if you're not sleeping and you're not eating and you're taking a stimulant, it's almost like for me, it was like taking uh, Advil for a headache. Mm -hmm. Like I just wouldn't feel the symptoms, but they're still happening to you, you know? And then the crash is just a million times worse because now you've gone twice as long without Mm -hmm. eating. And it's just crazy how these medications can um, make it so that you don't have to do basic things that you need to do to survive, obviously up until a point, but it can prolong your ability to withstand the symptoms, which is crazy. Yeah. You know, I had an adrenaline hangover for years from high school. Truly, it took me like a year and a half for my synapses to like return to normal because it was just in the moment. So much of it is like survival, literally moment to moment Mm -hmm. survival of just. My mom took me in eighth grade to see this movie called Race to Nowhere. And it's about like the school system in America pushing you so hard and then the point of the movie is like then you get to then you graduate college and it's like what was that for and I'm just curious if you think there's a point to the race or if what you took away from that ultra competitive environment or if you're just like race to nowhere like it's just um it's just detrimental and there's really nothing good about it it's tough because having gone to boarding school and having lived through that competitivity that desperation for excellence, that pressure is a part of me when I walk into an audition room Mm -hmm. or when I walk into a meeting of any kind or when hard things happen. But I I know that there were aspects of it that just, you know, messed me Mm -hmm. up for a long time and prepared me for a path that I had no interest in going down and kind of like presented that as the only path that was really possible which was alienating to so many people. And so I think, you know, my sense of self back then has definitely carried my sense of self that I was forced to develop when these adults were saying things about me or saying things to me that I was just like, I know that's not true about me. And I know that that's not true about the world that I like want to live in. The sense of self that I had to develop, which was so individual, like that has carried on. And I, and I just don't think it would have happened if it hadn't been that crazy, that much of a pressure cooker. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to come back to something you said a while ago about coming into your role as a woman at boarding school, because I think the journey to womanhood is really interesting and and often stands as this awakening. And there were two things you said that really resonated with me, and I want to hear more about them. Um, The first is this realization that you're being watched um, and sexualized. And the second thing is related to this idea of, of a little girl with a lot of potential, because for me, it was like, you're too smart with the tone of kind of like, get out of the way, get out of the way. And so my journey to womanhood was coming to terms with this uphill battle of wanting to be appreciated as smart. Something I have not forgotten since 11th grade English is, and I hate to bring her into this, Daisy from The Great Gatsby saying, the greatest (laughs) thing for a girl to be is a beautiful little fool. And anyway, this is a long question, but I want to hear more about womanhood at boarding school, and then we'll continue on with some mental health and present day stories. I really want to talk about the concept of potential that Rainey brought up within Journey to Womanhood because I developed, I got boobs so early, went through puberty so early. And I think I internalized so much of the hypersexualizing that was happening to my body from other people. In high school, I remember it being this constant battle of like knowing that I had a lot of potential as a human being because I was smart and I would go for things and could handle a lot of pressure. 
but also always thinking it's so much easier to feed into and turn to my potential as a sexual object and feeling definitively like it was an uphill battle to do both. And then in high school, I was still pretty insecure physically, but I had these, I always had boobs and boys liked that. And I remember feeling like it was kind of a life hack for people to like find me attractive for that reason. And then as I got older and I realized like I really, the environment was making it impossible to be appreciated for those reasons and empowered sexually and also be empowered as like an intellectual individual, which I had a lot of interest in doing. And then, you know, in in boarding school, you get a lot of feedback from adults on that topic that aren't related to you. And when you say adults, getting feedback from adults on that stuff, what do you mean? You know, they have to monitor like, they have to monitor your sexual activity, basically. What I will say is that I often felt like my particular experience, the guise for the intervention was that they wanted to make sure it was healthy and happy for everyone involved. And it ended up being a lot of slut shaming when the conversation would happen. So that's just my experience. But I think, you know, there are some conversations I can think back to with like male faculty members or just men in general, where I wish I could, I wish I could go back in time and be in my body then and just look at them and absolutely obliterate them because that's what I would do now. So I would pay money to do that. Yeah. We've got a lot more to cover, but first a quick break to let you in on a secret. We are completely unqualified to give any kind of advice. That's not a secret. Not at all. The secret is, if you're looking for advice, we've got another podcast to recommend. Had I Known is an interview show where the host, Dave Bolger, interviews alumni of his alma mater, Hamilton College. The good old CAC. His guests include a Top Chef contestant who shared how she dealt with coming out and being attacked in college. A stand-up comedian who shared what it's like for women in comedy. And the co-founder of Netflix, who went from a geology major to building one of the most successful startups ever. You can get Had I Known wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think. All right, back to regularly scheduled programming. I want to I want to ask someone really quick. It's so crazy. You guys are both extremely close to me. You're both, you're born four days apart. We have a favorite, <gasps> she, Rainy, are you Pisces or Aquarius? They're both, you I'm guys Aquarius. are both Aquarius. Are Wait, are oh? you six or 14? Of February. I'm the 14th. I'm the 14th. <gasps> oh my god! I'm a Valentine's yes. Day bitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love I love Aquarius. We're like, not that nice, but it's kind of like the best. Not at all, but it's the best. But you guys are yeah. also both OCD queens. <gasps> and J'adore. I've, I've had individual conversations with both of you about OCD. Mm-hmm. I'm like more generalized anxiety, but is there a way specifically that your OCD manifested in? high school and what has sort of been the progression completely well so I this is so interesting because I have been thinking about this a lot Mm -hmm. in the last six to eight months the thoughts have and it was starting to get like that at Wesleyan in the last year and then the thoughts especially being in quarantine have been insane to the point where I've been medicated specifically for that Mm -hmm. kind of for the first time because to be honest in high school, looking back, I can see the ways that it would manifest, particularly yeah. in the like degrees of perfectionism that I adhered to, which mm-hmm. were not like attached to human reality at all. I think on to be totally honest, being on that much stimulant medication and 
having a really regimented existence really mm-hmm. like massaged my OCD in a weird way. Yeah. Like it made it, it made it really easy to like live this mm-hmm. OCD lifestyle where some a way that my OCD manifests, for example, is like it is really hard for me to rest and sleep and turn my mm-hmm. brain off. And I just didn't in high school. Like I just never right. did. Do I think looking back that the particular <laughs> issues that I have, shall we even say mental illnesses that I have, are part <laughs> of why I had such a good time there? Because like being an OCD mm-hmm. queen at my high school, I hesitate to say the word beneficial because it was so crippling, but you know, the environment lent itself yeah. to that existence, yes. And I think in being anxious there 100%, I think one of the most interesting topics there will always be like how mental illness, how pervasive it is and how the lack of it being addressed. And so I don't have, I don't really have an answer for how like my OCD existed there because I don't think I had any awareness. Like I I know that I was suffering mentally for sure um, in ways Mm -hmm. that I still suffer now, but I don't think I understood triggers. I didn't understand how to manage it. It felt like another feeling in this like big pot of feelings that I was having all the time every day mix that with no sleep and stimulant medication. And I just don't think there was enough self-awareness. Yeah, right. And first of all, I'm so, so happy that you're part of OCD Gang Gang with me and John Green. 100%. Um, Yay. So I want to hear an overview of your OCD. So what triggers you? Um, what is it about? How does your OCD manifest? Um, just just overall themes. Totally. I don't know how many friends from high school you guys have kind of like drifted from. I think one of the ways I would describe my obsession with relationships is like that normal drifting that happens like kills me. I hold on really tight to relationships because of high school and because of going through that alongside people. Like the word drift was like not part of my vocabulary. Like your friends or your family, you would do anything for them. And honestly, that has also extended to people that I've been in romantic relationships with for sure. Like it's really hard for me to step back and acknowledge like I'm not getting what I need. I'm not giving this person what they need. And we just should be apart because I'm so obsessed with loyalty and sticking through Mm -hmm. things getting in and out of certain friendships, relationships, environments. Some of those exacerbate Mm -hmm. my OCD so much. And um, my OCD and my anxiety manifest in just the most vicious cycling thoughts and self-abuse, usually mental self-abuse, and then occasionally through starving myself. But again, that has, I haven't had that in a really long time either, but my OCD will just, you know, I will think the most horrific things about myself, things that I would, Mm -hmm. that I would never say to another living person. And I think that's the biggest, you know, that's something you can eat, you can um, tangibly fight against when you feel yourself saying those words. So I'm working on that. Yeah. Um, And then for our OCD gang gang, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what, strategies you found are helpful for like dealing with OCD on your own okay still very much a work in progress I will say like I struggle with it every single day still but I think the biggest thing when I have an obsessive thought that's like completely paralyzing I just have to say to myself like you know what this is this is OCD and you can either Mm -hmm. think about it all day and waste your time or you can put it away for a few days and when you face it again it will be less bad because it's never rational in the moment you know, you have to stop like you see a stop sign and recognize what it is because the moment mm-hmm. you give it air. Right. And just like the discipline of like. Yeah, totally. Stop. What would you say yeah. is your biggest coping? Um, so 
for my OCD, I I got hospitalized twice, both for like trouble breathing. So the first was pneumonia, and the second like still don't know what that was, but couldn't breathe. And so like my therapist calls it trauma. Like I think that now I get really I'm OCD around getting sick, so I oh, I like yeah. can't drink from the same glass twice, and then all these invasive thoughts that I like shake my head for. You know, there's all these like compulsions. Yeah. Oh, a big a big argument I have for like my inner thought monologue is like if drinking a glass twice is that dangerous why does everybody do it and everybody's fine Mm. like that's a lot like sometimes I like if sharing food is so dangerous then why does everybody do it and everybody's fine I love that's like one argument that I use Mm -hmm. I think also yeah I mean I think just like like being like I'll think about this again in 10 minutes and in 10 minutes a lot of time it's like already gone totally that's fine it's okay Mm -hmm. yeah so it sounds like friendships in your high school played the role of a parent, teacher, supervisor, which is so much power and influence for one person. So I'm imagining if a friendship breaks, that's very scary. Is that is that right or is it different or is there more? Exactly. Well, I think you're touching on something like that has been a massive part of my life, which is just like both of my parents since I was born have worked full time and have had my dad travels a ton for his job. My mom travels a ton for her job. I've always been a super, super independent person, like hyper, hyper independent. And I think Mm -hmm. I think I had to do a lot of caring for myself on my own and and I and I would not change that but as soon as I realized like you can find people friends or lovers who will care for you in a way that your parents never have I was like this is the cheat code like Like, more of this from all angles (laughs) and I'm realizing like the ways that I will let people fill roles that I didn't even know I need filled but I never really had filled growing up that self-awareness gets exhausting because you don't want Mm -hmm. to have to look at all of the quote-unquote harmful relationships that you have in your life like that's annoying I'd rather just get all the serotonin and like lie in it but I think Mm -hmm. it's been a journey of like examining that and taking the necessary steps to kind of like be independent in a healthy way where I manage my OCD on my Mm -hmm. own and I don't I don't put that on other people We've talked a lot about high school. Mm. I'm at this interesting point where I'm like really trying to process my Wesleyan experience like like a year later where I'm just like, what did this mean and how mm-hmm. has it affected me? Yeah. All these like affects are crystallizing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like how I view the world and what's your feeling on it right now? Like how are you, fi- mm. do, you do you feel like you have rose colored glasses on or are you kind of like on Wesleyan or high school on Wesleyan? I honestly, I right now I have the opposite of we- rose colored glasses and I think that'll <laughs> change again. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like I had this moment of kind of like cracking the code of realizing like reaching the end of my rope with sacrificing mental health. Yeah. And I think mental health was getting more and more tenuous. So I stopped being able to really sacrifice it. And I do feel like I kind of took a step back from like the craziness of the school, like socially. And I kind of figured out a formula that worked for me where I still felt really involved, but also felt like I was holding things at an arm's length. I mean, I look back on it and and I, I think of it as a really tough place, to be honest. Yeah. And I am so thankful for what I got to do there with like art and creation and the way that that was prioritized there was so special, but I felt like it was a really hard place for my mental Mm -hmm. health. Well, Rainy, I feel like we've talked about biggest fear, but Vienna, do you have like Mm -hmm. your biggest fear right now? Like Mm. it it could be anything. Honey. Like like what haunts you? I mean, I think, and this is definitely like the OCD. I think I have a fear of like losing people. This is my biggest thing. I love being alone when I feel like it's my own choice. I love being alone when like my phone is blowing up and I'm like throwing it dramatically across the room. Like I don't have time. Like I have to do, I have so many things to do, like being alone. But then when I am actually 
like feel isolated, I think that's one of my lowest. Yeah. Also, my biggest fear, point blank period, is flying. It's because it's the ultimate lack of control. Like if I could fly my own plane, mm-hmm. if I could fly the plane full of people, it, this is how I feel is that I love pilots and I, I love their work, but do I feel like I could do everything better than anyone? Yes. And then would I like the responsibility? Also, yes. So if I could like fly everyone, like I would just feel better if it was in my hands, you know? Mm. So um, fucking mind boggling to me. I would never fly. I would be, I'd be like, I know everyone before me. Everyone. Everyone before me, I do not, <laughs> I cannot handle this pressure. I'd be totally. like, I'm going to, like, that probably is, like, high up on the fear. 100%. I'm just like, I'm going to disappoint I'm everyone, fine, so. Fine. Yeah. Well, I love pressure. No. It's my favorite thing. Well, you're ADHD and dyslexic. Mm-hmm. Okay, really quick. So I'm curious about your path after. So you graduated Wesleyan last year with us. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the timeline of the last year and a half? For sure. So I graduated Wesleyan, immediately felt like I had to return to Italia, tie up some loose ends there. So I did so with Darcy so and two of my other friends, which was amazing. Um, I so just had beautiful. to sort of My favorite face. photo of, is of you in the church where you're... <laughs> and my favorite of you is in the church. We both have this sort of reverence for Catholicism that is in no way related mm-hmm. to like actually being Catholic, which is exciting. Yeah, we cross you know, like yeah. I have such appreciation for like the architecture and the color palette. And I also have no tie, <laughs> no, no emotional tie whatsoever. <laughs> we returned to Italia, um, just kind of like bathed in the sea. And I was an absolute wreck graduating, but you, I feel like you were fine. I was so really fine. I was so fine. And that I will say is a direct tie to graduating from my high school, which was the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to me. I felt like I was getting in a spaceship and blasting off to another planet instead of driving two and a half hours back to my home in New York. Like I truly could not cope. And I also was ready to leave. So yeah. mm-hmm. um, I came back to the city I was home and so happy to be back with my family because I hadn't lived with them. So between May and February, I worked downstairs as a hostess and I just auditioned, auditioned, auditioned. This is all pre-TikTok, hadn't even downloaded the app. Then I went through a audition process for the show that I was so excited about, which was all an all-female identifying cast. That ended up getting canceled because of the pandemic. And that was like gonna be a big thing for me. And after that got canceled, I was like, I can't waste any more time. I must download TikTok. So you, you downloaded TikTok like with quarantine? Yeah. Just in the last. Wow. Yeah. You have, you've been on a fast rise. Cause I feel Thank like you so much. you've been with me since quarantine. Yeah. On my phone. I, that's when I really settled in. How many videos did it take before you were like famous? I would say it took like seven or eight videos. I think it was like my ninth video or something that kind of got it like the the way it happens is also so funny because you like go to sleep <laughs> and you wake up and it's these like astronomical numbers and to be honest such an anxiety trigger for me but but i was yeah. lucky in that the first video that I kind of made that people connected with was something that was so near and dear to my heart. So I had a really positive first experience, mm. I will say. Which was? Which was a sort of social commentary, if you will, TV show H2O, mm-hmm. which is yes, a yes. 2000s classic about Australian mermaids. <laughs> and let's roll the clip. Okay, so it's three girls, and every time they touch even the tiniest drop of water, they turn into mermaids. Isn't that great? Oh, that's great. That's a great idea. Yeah. I just have a question real quick about the um, the water thing, because I'm wondering how the girls are doing sort of, you know, basic survival tasks like washing their hands or taking a shower or drinking water. If every single time they do any of those things, they grow a gigantic tail. You know, it sounds a little bit um, tedious and uh, horrible. 
Have I mentioned the names will be Cleo, Emma, and Ricky? Oh, that is so fucking cute. We are making this TV show. I'm dead. That video is nothing short of iconic. And this is what I live for. Like, this is, to be clear, if I ever do find any success in the performing arts, like, this this is the only work I want to do, <laughs> is, is, like, work where you have to commit to a premise that makes right. no yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like, these girls, every time they <laughs> touch any kind of water, which does include, like, washing your hands or, like, you know, walking on wet grass, they just turn into <laughs> mermaids. And what I always loved about H2O was that the, the choice, the design choice with their tails, because their tails are heinous. They are massive, like rubbery orange things that are like the bottom half of them. And they're so ugly and cumbersome. And I just loved, you know, realization of, of mermaids that was not just your average, you know, it wasn't easy for them. The tails were not cute, but, you know, so I think... If you're listening to this podcast, which you in fact are, <laughs> I think you should watch this because yeah, speak it's directly to so the good. Mm, yes. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and break the fourth wall because because also it's like I, I think, <laughs> you know, it's come in and out of people's polit- of people's um, social consciousness. I was going to say people's political consciousness and it is political also a political psyche. show. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, <a> political <laughs> show. That's, you know, the kind of stuff I want to make stuff about. It's just like uh, the ab- absurd. You are now getting paid by them. I am. Yeah, you are, and that's like a month on a monthly basis, more or less. It is on a monthly basis. It is. So, can you tell us just like how did, <laughs> what, what yes. precipitated that financial arrangement? How did that happen? Absolutely. So they have a creators fund that you can apply for after you hit a certain amount of followers. So, I applied for it and didn't think much of it, and then I had like a big jump in my account. Gosh, probably like a month ago now. And was that because of a specific video? That was because of my first Mob Wife video. Oh. Because my my account used to bear absolutely no relation to Mob Wives official, to Mob right. Wives, besides right. just like sort of this, I like to think, this like glint in my eye that maybe made you think like, you know, but there was no content <laughs> yeah, on there it was that like hinted at all. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. aesthetic. And, and so that, but then I just, I actually was on my way to a, um, 4th of July get together, a very small one. And I was, I looked really good. I'll level with both of you. I looked great for the first time in a long time. (laughs) And so I was like, I need to make a video. This is a waste of like a good um, hair and makeup day. And so I (laughs) like whipped out my phone and just like put, you know, started talking. I mean, that video literally happened. It was like the most natural process of probably any video I've ever made. It took me two seconds. And that video ended up getting like 6 million views, the best video I've ever done. And that and got me a lot of new followers. So I actually started to make money off of the creator fund because it's all based on engagement. I know you okay so you've this is a question that I have been meaning to ask you recently again I know Mm -hmm. that we've talked about this concept of fame (laughs) before and like (laughs) we open we open we open the bottom and it was like well you're obviously gonna be a Hollywood star which I am like fully you could be thank you Darcy thank you but I you have told me before you're like I just want to be famous to my closest friends and family 100 percent. what's crazy about tiktok is you can feel so famous overnight like i remember when i posted i had my dance phase but even getting however mm-hmm. like 500 views i was like what like okay the yeah. world knows me so 100%. i don't even, you have over you have something like 8.3 million likes like that is simply unfathomable do you how do you how do you feel about that question about fame right now 
Well, I really liked what you said before, which was, I liked the quote you said that I said, that I just want to be famous to my friends and family. And the fun fact about that is that I have been training them for years to treat me like I'm famous and they, and they do, and they have, and, and it has nothing to do with TikTok and everything to do with their, like, this girl is absurd and this is, like, the only way to communicate with her is just to like spoof this idea can you talk about your um your mob wife character who like i want to be her where did that come thank from you, is Rainey. that your like thank you well i think a lot of these the things that i put out there are like pieces of me the yes. ridiculous theater kid work i, I do is like the opposite of who i am like i, I no, theater culture is quite frankly the bane of your existence it's the bane of my existence it's literally the bane of my yeah. existence i mean and i'll say I, it so you don't have to thank but. you darcy thank you so much <laughs> um because i do get worried you know i i do worry you know when people are commenting thousands of times a day Rachel Berry you are <laughs> Rachel Berry all you you know I, I just I, I I hope that people understand it is a it's a parody of something that I I hate and also something that I feel very close to and also something that is like alive in me and I feel mm-hmm. the need to like pull it out and poke fun at it because that's what's funny to me you know like as opposed to sitting here and being like I am the kind of organic performer that like (laughs) doesn't care and isn't you know I want to step into that those shoes because it's funnier and I have more fun and I think the mob wife thing is similar there is a niche part of TikTok where men (laughs) pretend to be mobsters and (laughs) they're like oh yes I'll send you guys they're like hypersexual videos but also trying to like produce a reaction in women I think I don't know I don't know but it's very serious and so I kind of wanted to just parody that and also I you know I was also interested in like the female perspective of what I think people think of as like a sort of or what I was seeing being done on TikTok as this sort of like masculine thing so that's a video the first video of that series that the comments on there, for example, if you scroll down far enough, are scary because because it, mm-hmm. it gets to a point where like, you know, after a certain point, the amount of eyeballs that are on it, you're going to get people who say really horrific things. The other thing is I think there's a temptation to, and I get this for sure because I do this too. I think we all do. Like a temptation to extrapolate from what you're seeing about who the person is as a person. And that's where, like, for me, it becomes an OCD nightmare because Mm -hmm. for people to think that they know something that I know is patently false or something that is just more complicated because you you can never know a person from seeing 40 seconds of them. My therapist actually said that TikTok was, like, an amazing exercise for my OCD because I'm obsessed with controlling the narrative always and you just can't do that when you have... Mm-hmm. A lot of pe- like people are going to make snap judgments and you can't prevent that. And I think I've worked through so much of that through TikTok. I mean, if the app dies in a few weeks, which, you know, it might like that's been on the horizon. I think I will have learned so, so much from having to let the opinions of people who don't know me slide off my back. You feel like it's facilitated a lot of growth in terms of not giving people space mm-hmm. to dictate how you feel because this is like where my anxiety resides so deeply and why I like haven't looked at Instagram comments for a a decade plus like Uh let's say it say it a decade plus honey you might have some like love letters in your Instagram comments 
and th- that's how much it freaks me out Rainy. i'm willing to let those potential <laughs> lifetime loves die because i can't handle it wow. i can't handle it and actually hearing you guys talk about ocd i'm like wow that's kind of it's like a yeah. bit of a compulsion of mine just not to be able to to post something and then literally not be able to look at it again because perception is so hard for me and the reality is like my, I mean, my coping mechanism is is being like people literally spend so little time on this one thing. Yeah, you just have to do it and then move on. And yes. it's so unproductive to give space to people that probably aren't thinking about you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're planning on moving to LA. Yes. And you're the next Addison Rae, next Charlie D'Amelio. We know this. Oh, thank you so much. Do I do you... want people to know that I'm not moving to LA because I because of TikTok or because I think I'm TikTok famous in any way, shape, or form. It is because I'm depressed, so, which is related, but also two separate things. <laughs> what are your What are you feeling right now in terms of transitioning? You don't want to be in New York for the winter. Do not want to be in New York for the winter. Do you have plans in terms of this transition? Do you have goals? Are you kind of like, I just need to not, I just need, need a geographic change? Because I get into those moments where I'm like, I need to not be in this place. Absolutely. No plans, no goals. I'm such a diehard New Yorker. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I just can't imagine doing winter here. And I looked at the facts and was like, you know, this could make me really, really happy. I mean, the weather alone. <laughs> But I also am, I mean, I'm so scared. Like, I, I, I wonder if it's just going to be the worst decision ever. What are you most afraid of? I think I'm most afraid of, like, I had, like, the craziest ride with medication. I basically, mm-hmm. I tried Lexapro, which sent me over the edge. Like, I had the worst reaction, oh, no. just, like, pure yak, which is really, I mean, people love, like, whatever, you can say that about every medication, but yeah. I was really excited and it I went into like a full psychotic suicidal state yeah I mean that's a very small percentage I've heard it was like the textbook small percentage that has that reaction and um, scary so I had to it was horrible it was horrible and I had to wean off of that or I cut it cold turkey I didn't even wean because the reaction was so bad and then I got on another medication that I loved but a really small percentage of that like less than 10 percent have a um, really bad reaction, which then like 1% of that have a fatal reaction to, which is like, it begins with, I had like a fever, full body rash, huge lymph nodes, which is weird from like a, you know, psych uh, medication that's supposed to help your mind. Like you don't want to have that kind of reaction to it. So ASAP had to get off of it. And I had to cut that cold turkey too, which sucked because I loved it. It was a mood stabilizer. And... I was brokenhearted. I was literally like going to every doctor in New York, get trying to get permission to take, you know, let's just say the smallest dose of that was like 25 and it's it's all in a pill form. I literally was going around New York trying to find a doctor that would prescribe me liquid version of it so that I could take five milligrams wow. and then build back up to 25. And everyone was like, this, this medic, you are having the reaction that can kill you. So you need, right. you're not allowed to take it. And I was begging anyone to prescribe it to me because it was the only time I'd felt normal in like wow. a month. So it was heartbreaking. And then I finally got on the medication I'm on now, which works really well for me, but I, I'm on a low dose and I still have really, really bad days. What I'm most afraid of is that my medicine will just stop working and I will have an episode like the ones I've had far away from my family. I just don't know. I just don't know. But I think this is a fear that like, if I let it 
could stop me from doing anything. I have a lot of fear around just like, what if? But that, you know, you can drive that into the ground if you let yourself. So two things that really stood out to me throughout this conversation um, are one idea of control and another of courage. And I've really been impressed with Vienna's courage. And I've actually been thinking about courage a lot recently because for a long time I felt like courage didn't exist. I was like, I don't really know what the Gryffindor house looks like in real life. Like, I, I mean, there's no situation in which I can go to like the chamber of secrets i i just felt like courage was very reactive and you're put in these situations and you show courage based on the situation and and listening to this interview i really think that moving to la is proactive courage but also there's also a lot of courage in the story and just persevering and moving forward in the unknown and moving forward in a high school without any adult supervision or help and so first I want to commend you on your courage but I also want to ask your advice and I guess I want to hear what you think courage is that was a fire question 100% I mean you know I instantly want to be like not give myself that credit but I but the truth is too much shit has gone down you know to to sit here and be like I'm not brave yeah and I guess that's a piece of advice I would give. It's like everybody has a time in their life when they have been truly brave. And I think our impulse, especially as women, is to make those memories small. Mm, But, you know, a lot of the time just walking around can be an act of bravery. Like for a variety of reasons, I think I had a concept of bravery and how necessary it was for me to be brave from a really young age. And all of my experiences, not denying myself that, being like, the good thing is, Vienna, you're a brave ass person. Yeah. Being able to say that when I can't admit to myself that I think I'm smart or funny or all of these other things, it sounds cliche, but like it makes the world of a difference. So what you're saying is you've always sort of conceptualized yourself that way. I really have. Have you always thought of yourself as a brave person? You know, I have. And like, Again, the impulse is to be like, why would you assign yourself a power? Why would you acknowledge within yourself a powerful trait? I get embarrassed around doing that. I, I have hesitancy in doing that. In, in acknowledging that I have bravery within me is huge for me and really empowering. And even, you know, if you haven't had some of the more dramatic moments where that, where bravery has crystallized, I guarantee you have those moments in your life. You know, they don't always have to be the big dramatic blowout ones. Yeah, I think small... Sm- Small moments of bravery are incredibly hard to recognize. Incredibly. Especially within battles with mental health. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Because things with it, because I think about things that are so petrifying to me and how easy they are for other people yeah. who don't struggle with the same manifestations of anxiety that I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is literally so, so innate to such an innate behavior for you, which is like a huge feat of courage for me. Huge huge you know and then also you look back on periods of your life and it takes years to acknowledge that what you were exhibiting during that period of time was bravery because it's hard in the moment to acknowledge how hard something is for you and how brave you're having to be like looking back I'm able to do that and I don't know I would encourage that kind of scrutiny it's been really helpful for me We want to extend a huge thank you to Vienna for sharing her story with us, and we can't wait to follow her journey as she opens up her next act. On another note, Doing It Wrong is extremely excited to announce that we now have a Patreon account that we don't exactly know how to use yet. 
but if you know us you know that literally no one pays us to do this so if you like what we've put out into the world or have learned anything at all or feel compelled to help us continue to ideate on being young and the ways to make it more bearable become a patron and get access to exclusive content check us out at patreon.com slash doing it wrong this week we're donating to the aclu of georgia who defends civil liberties of all georgians including intensely ensuring Georgians' voters' rights, both in courtrooms and at polling stations. We recorded the second half of this episode on Wednesday, November 4th, when we still didn't know who would be the 46th president. And so, upon release, all we can say is, cheers to the Bidens, and cheers to American democracy. Did you and the guys finish all my mozzarella last night? Well, you finished all of it? You weren't going to tell me? My ma's about to get here for brunch and no mozzarella. I mean, it's mortifying. What am I going to do? All right, you might run half the tri-state area, but you don't run me, okay? Here, I'm the boss. Doing It Wrong is made by Darcy Newrider and Rainy Toll. Our executive producers are Toll, Rainy, and Newrider, Darcy. Our technical directors are Rain Woman, Not Rain Man, Toll, and Darcy Hagendas Nucleotide. Our sound engineers are Taney Roll and Narcy Dewrider. Love them. Special thanks to our writers, Darcy. New at writing, new writer, and Rainey has written some essays before Toll. And our editors, D. Newwriter at KentDenver.org and Rainey Toll at ScienceandTech.org, who have put in many hours into this production. We source our contemporary philosophy from Darcy D. Sorrento Nucleotide and Rainey Toll, descendant of the Toll family that owns Toll and Toll. Our intern is May Toll. And we receive begrudged, second-rate freelance creative consulting from Luke Newwriter. Our custodians are Rain Dog, Let's Get Through This Fog, and D New New 22, This Is Not About You. Please reach out to our large team if you're interested in contributing or being a guest on our show. Every inquiry must begin with the whom's it may concern or it won't be processed. Our outreach managers and also our contact emails are DarcyNewRider at gmail.com and RainyToll at hotmail.com. Our cover art is by Maddie Haynes. Check her out at maddiehaynes.com. Peace and blessings. Please check our next episode and text your friend this episode link right now.